0: I want to ask you, have you ever heard the saying, every lie, every good lie, every effective lie has a partial truth in it? Falsehood depends on truth to legitimize itself, to make itself believable, just like the devil depends on God to make himself believable. If you think about it, there are different kinds of lies that we can succumb to that we can fall prey to one is a lie that says this happened when it didn't happen or this didn't happen when it did happen but there is a more subtle manipulative lie that i think the devil attempts to perpetrate on christians that does not try to dispute a matter but tries to change the definition and the language whereby we discuss the matter so that we're saying the same thing and meaning the opposite thing. Language is a powerful thing. In fact, there are whole schools of philosophy, analytic philosophy, also called linguistic philosophy, is all about language and the meaning that language lends to life. I think those who have embarked on the effort of translation have discovered that there is incredible meaning in language and that you cannot simply translate this thought to this language because there are words that aren't even in this language which are heavily relied upon in the original. Sister Jen is nodding her head. She she understands that, that, that the vocabulary to talk about something is a big part of the meaning of it. You may not have an equivalent word in this other language for faith, for hope, for love. There may not be words that are equivalent to the original language. And imagine... Well, you see it in our in our world today. We have we we see that through the totalitarianism of of of, uh, political correctness, we have we have seen language start to change. When when I was born, marriage meant had a certain definition. You could look it up in the dictionary. It had a definition, and that definition has changed not just the behavior of people, we expect that to change, but the definition of a term has changed. The definition of the term male or female has changed. Do you understand? And there's no more insidious tyranny than that which seeks to alter the meaning of words, of terms, of traditional truths and concepts. And the devil is the ultimate totalitarian, and so he is not going to attempt an affrontal assault on the truths of Scripture evidenced in the lives of believers because those are incontrovertible. Those are too persuasive and powerful for him to contend with. When he sees what you feel as you read the book of Hebrews, the 11th chapter, about the heroes of faith... He knows that something is being galvanized in your heart to do God's will you understand the power of faith so he's not going to attempt to tell you don't have faith in your life that'd be too simplistic that would be too easily dismissed he is going to change the meaning of faith for you and then tell you every day have faith in your life and you're thinking one thing that differs greatly from what the Bible was referring to when it used that word. Do you see the insidious nature of this? We're told by Peter in the second chapter, in the first chapter of his second epistle, he says, but know this first of all. This is a pretty emphatic statement that the apostle Peter is about to make to Christians. Know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own private interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, but by men who were moved by the Holy Spirit and spoke from God. He says, you can't know this first of all, you can't interpret scripture by private interpretation because it didn't come by the will of man but as people were carried along by the Holy Spirit moved by God his his implication is because this word came by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit it can only be interpreted in the manner in which it came by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so when you when you take truths from the Bible and you subject them to private, carnal, human-centered interpretation, you're going, to interrupt, you're going to end up with the worst kind of deception and falsehood. You're going to end up with the tragedy of, of skewed language. If you are learning English as a South Korean or a Mexican or whatever it is, and you go to an English class and your instructor holds up the red sign with the big uh, capital letters S-T-O-P on it and he says, now I want you to understand this sign means yield. You are at the mercy of that interpreter, are you not? Because you don't know what that sign means. It is insignificant for you, right? So he has to open your understanding to it, and he says this sign means yield. What's going to happen? You're going to encounter the same messages that other people are encountering. You're going to recognize them and cognate them in your thinking, and yet you're going to result at an opposite conclusion. Or what if he says it means go? Go. It's like you start pulling up to the stop sign. Honey, 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 it's a stop sign. Oh, you hit the gas and into the intersection in a collision. So there is a real danger if we allow the world or uninspired Christian thinking or the devil to interpret the truths of the Bible. You can have access to the same correct, life-saving truth, but if your language is wrong and your interpretation is wrong, you are completely incapacitated, even though you're looking at the same messages. There are people who have been trained to think that faith is assumption, that grace is permissiveness, that obedience is enslavement and that freedom is licentiousness. And so when they read the Bible and it says you receive this by faith, they say you receive it by assumption. That's what they're thinking. And you're interpreting one thing, they're interpreting another. I remember being a teenager and, and thinking, you know what the devil has done is he has written a new dictionary. He has taken all of the phrases and terms that are critical to the scripture and he has written a new dictionary whereby we can use the same words and mean an opposite meaning. He has given new definitions to biblical words. He needs you nodding your head in agreement and thinking and inferring the opposite meaning from what God intended. If you think faith is an assumption And the Lord comes to you and says, Are you walking by faith? You're thinking, Am I walking by assumption? Yes, sir. Yes, Lord, I am. And all the carnals say, Praise God. The Bible says to walk by faith, and He said He's doing it. But you've got the wrong definition. It's as bad as thinking that the stop sign means go, it is a skewed definition. Do you follow? He's not going to attack the concept of walking by faith in the first place. He can't argue with God. He's going to change the definition of what it means. So let me give you some interpretations of Scripture, and I want to see what you think about these interpretations. So I've talked about the meaning of words. Now I want to talk about the meaning of phrases and causality, okay? So I want you to tell me if you think this is a logical statement. Is it a biblical truth that the kindness of God brings us to repentance. Yes. So tell me if this is a logical statement. It is the kindness of God that brings me to repentance. I have not come to repentance, therefore I have not been shown enough kindness. <laughs> Did anybody follow that? Because I think that we I think that we believe this. I think we spin scripture in this manner. It is the kindness of God that brings me to repentance. I have not come to repentance, therefore I have not been shown enough kindness. What is the convenient result of this equation? It's God's fault. That's right. Your rational thinking will never be so active as it is when it needs to get you off the hook of responsibility. Let's try another. Is it a biblical truth that love casts out all fear? I am still a slave of fear, therefore I have not been shown enough love. Is it a biblical truth that we love God because, there's the word cause, because, for the cause that he loved us first. I do not love God, therefore he has not loved me first. (laughs) What is the problem with this because this is a fra- this is a, a, a way of interpreting scripture that I believe is false and you do too. When we hear it, we 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 hear the falsehood in it and yet I believe we are, we fall prey to these snares in our thinking. I believe that our fast-footed dash to evade responsibility shifts the responsibility to god in just this kind of evasive reinterpretation of scripture so let's start with that easy one it is the kindness of god is that a categorical statement it is the kindness of god that brings us to repentance did not paul say that and is paul speaking the inspired and scriptured word of god when he says that okay i have not come to repentance therefore i have not been shown enough kindness what is wrong with that statement it's assuming that it just relies on God and not like, the human response to it, too. We have a part to play. We have the free choice to choose to accept that and to respond to His, His kindness to us. That's it. If somebody's going to lead you, you've got to actually take their hand and to start taking some steps with them. Amen. Another translation, kindness leads us to repentance. You yank your hand away and stay where you're at, you're not going to go. But God is sovereign, Brother Daniel if God wants me to come to repentance, he can bring me to repentance. Didn't it say in Acts 11 that Peter told about Cornelius' conversion and, and um, the apostles glorified God and they said, they, they praised God that he had granted the Gentiles repentance. So it's not something we do, repentance is not something we do, it's something God does. He grants it to us. About, what about when he commands everyone to repent? Well, you know, he's going to fulfill that, that scripture through so us. He commands us to pray, but the Holy Spirit makes intercession through us. This is a fallacy. It's called the fallacy of single cause. Let's let's try this out in, in real life. Is it a true statement that you cannot make a good cake without sugar? Any baker in here, please answer me. So is it also a true statement that if a cake contains sugar, it is a good cake? (laughs) so it is the fallacy of single cause okay it is a true and categorical statement that you can let's make it even more complete it is a categorical true statement that you cannot make a good cake without shortening flour sugar and eggs perhaps not the last part but it is that's that's true but it is not true that if a cake contains all those things it is a good cake As many of us could testify. Because something is a cause does not mean it is the sole cause. Because the kindness of God does lead us to repentance, does not negate our free will in the equation. And if you have a view of God's sovereignty that does not allow for our free will, then you have an illegitimate, unscriptural view of God's sovereignty. Because scripture shows us that God can't do some things that he wants to do. Can you think of any time where God desired repentance for somebody? Where God wanted something for someone? Where God loved someone and it did not result as God intended? The rich young ruler. Well, don't give all my scriptures in the same <laughs> sentence. So look at, look at some of this. He says to the rich young ruler, what is the operative word in that phrase? What is the operative phrase in that, in that story? And Jesus loved him. Well, there's the kindness that brings us to repentance. There's the love that initiates love. God's outpouring of love and kindness and concern and his desire for this man did not result in this man coming to repentance. Why? Because this man was not made in the image of an animal to be manipulated by a higher power. This man was not made like wood or stone to be built and fashioned at someone else's will. This man was made in the image of God. And what it means to be made in the image of God is to have a free will, to have a decision, to have a choice in the matter. The Garden of Eden showed us, shows this to us. God does not put the tree of life, I mean, the tree of knowledge, out of their reach. He appeals to their loyalty and says, Don't do it, because you ought not, but you can. Please do what is right, but you don't have to. It is the terrifying power of human will. Looking at the rich young ruler, Jesus felt a love for him and said, one thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But at these words, he was saddened. And he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Does it say Jesus pursued him? If Jesus had gushed on him more love, more affection, more displays of of kindness, would that have converted this man? No. Because what was missing from the equation was not love. That was already present in sufficient dosage to achieve salvation. What was missing from the equation was the humility that can make grace flow into our lives. Jesus wept over Jerusalem in the 23rd chapter of Matthew, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together. God wanted to do something the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. So we see in Scripture that God's wants can stop and fail when they encounter our unwillingness. We cannot blame God and say if only he had brought a more effectual word to Jerusalem. If only he had visited the temple a few more times. If only he had taken the Pharisees out to lunch and showed a little more patience. Well, if you want to put yourself in a position of passing judgment on God, then you can do that. I'm not comfortable with that. And what does Paul tell us? That all mankind are left without. He says that man is left without an excuse. We have been shown enough. We have seen enough. We have heard enough. We're told that even the creation reveals the invisible attributes of God to us. If we never knew a Christian, if we never sat in a service like this, If we never were taught the immutable truths of salvation, we would still be without excuse because the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmaments tell of his handiwork. Day unto day pours forth speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. And this is proven by the fact that a man once stood not knowing God, not being moral not being upright but he stood and gazed into the stars and the heavens began to speak to him and god said leave your country your people your father's house and go to a place i will show you we are without excuse thank you jesus hallelujah thank you jesus The terrifying power of free will is revealed in Mark 6 when it says that Jesus said to the people of his hometown of Nazareth, a prophet has honor everywhere except in his own country and among his own relatives and in his own house. And then the next sentence, now Jesus could not do. Many of the things for which you pray do not come to pass Because Jesus cannot do until you change something in you. And we pray by way of exonerating ourselves from responsibility. Oh God, please do such and such. But Jesus cannot do until we come to repentance for those hindrances in us that prevent his grace from flowing into our lives. And you can wish that God received the proud and rejected the humble. Because then that would put the majority in salvation. But you're not God. And he says that you can humble yourself. He doesn't say, hold still and I will humble you. He says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will lift you up. And he says gives, he gives grace to the humble. Do it yourself. Humble yourself yourself and God will give you grace. You've heard I've shared before about how people will hide in prayer from their from what God has called them to do. Right? And it seems that the angels didn't particularly appreciate this attitude when the apostles were in this posture of heavenly Uh, expectancy as Jesus ascended into heaven. Do you remember? They're gazing up into heaven. This is like better than most Christians' prayer time. And what did the angels say to them? Why do you stand there gazing up into heaven? It says Jesus was still ascending and they're already getting a a rebuke. Why aren't you getting on with doing what God told you to do? And many would rather pray than obey. MANY WOULD RATHER COMPLAIN THAN OBEY. WHY WOULD WE RATHER COMPLAIN OR PRAY THAN OBEY? BECAUSE IT SHIFTS THE RESPONSIBILITY BACK TO GOD. MANY WOULD RATHER STUDY THE SCRIPTURES THAN OBEY. WHAT DOES JOHN 5 TELL US? THAT JESUS SAID TO THE PHARISEES, YOU STUDY THE SCRIPTURES FOR IN THEM YOU THINK YOU HAVE ETERNAL LIFE. But they are those which speak of me, but you will not come to me that you may have life. Life was within their reach. <laughs> do you hear that? Amen. But it was up to them, and they would not do it. And if they had said, "But you said, Lord, that you came to give life and have it more and, and uh, give it more abundantly, And therefore, if we don't have life, it's because you haven't given it. Would that not be a devilish interpretation? I don't want to ever hear the Lord say, I would have done this in your life, but you were not willing. I don't ever want to hear the Lord say, I could not do mighty works in your life because of your lack of honor and belief. All of these indicate the terrifying power of free will that we, are, that we inherit as creatures made in God's image, one who decides, one who creates, the Son of God through whom the worlds were made, who stopped a storm with a word, who said to the centurion, That his servant would be healed, and he was. Who spoke, and blind eyes opened. Who cried out, and Lazarus came forth from the grave. He could not do. Why can he not do? Because there are two things God cannot do. What are they? Uh, Deny himself. He will not deny himself. And what is himself? It is love. God is love. There's a categorical statement for you. He will, do not, he will not deny, It does not say God is power, although he is powerful. The nature of his power is love. Amen. And love does not coerce, so he will not force. Saving love and grace will not transgress your will. He will not deny himself by transgressing The freedoms he gave you at the fall when he made you in his image. I remember being a a youngster and wishing God had made me without the choice to sin. Was there anybody else that thought that way? Right? Oh, okay. So there was a handful of us. And I almost kind of resented it. It was like, we know you're God and you're good, but why didn't you make me? Because we weren't made as animals. We were made in the image of God. And his love is not demonstrated powerful when we are manipulated or controlled by him against our will. His love is demonstrated powerful when we take off our crowns and we kneel before his throne and say, your kingdom come, your will be done, because I want it so, Lord. Abraham, if it pleases you, take your son, your only son. You don't have to. You can stay right where you are, and the promise of the ages dies with you. I'll find somebody else. But if it pleases you, Noah, build an ark. I think I'm going to do it, Lord. Oh, well, then grace is going to flow into your life. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The argument of the disobedient Christian is that he needs more fireworks or he needs greater quantity. I would, but I just need more of this or I need more of that. But he has shown you that you are without excuse, oh man. Did this argument, was this argument ever presented in Scripture? This argument that people would repent if only God would be more powerful to them? Somebody give me a witness of when this argument was presented in Scripture. The rich man's dialogue with Abraham from hell to heaven. How did that go, brothers and sisters? The rich man dies, and he ends up in hell, and he starts having an argument with Abraham. Oh, Father Abraham, please send Lazarus to cool my tongue. And then he shifts from himself in his own torment, and he starts thinking about his five brothers who are home, who are still on earth. But in expressing his burden for his brother, he reveals the excuse of his own heart. He says, send Lazarus to my five brothers. And what does Abraham say? No, they have Moses and the prophets. And what does the rich man say? No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. The argument is that people don't come to repentance because they haven't been shown enough powerful love. But Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Now I've told you that historically, this is an interesting account, because in the days of Jesus at this exact time, the high priest of the house of Caiaphas, Yosef bin Caiaphas, suddenly died and alarmed the nation. And this man, before dying, loved to eat sumptuously and dress in fine purple. But he had five brothers who survived him. And one of those five brothers became the Caiaphas who participated in the execution of Jesus. So you could surmise, and I call it nothing more, but it is an interesting concept, isn't it? You could surmise that this account in Luke 16 is telling of a dialogue in eternity that was a major cause for why the man Lazarus was raised from the dead. But the book of John, the 11th chapter, tells us that when Lazarus came forth from the dead, from that day on, they all repented and became followers of Jesus. Is that right? What does it tell us? happened as soon as Lazarus rose from the dead. From that day on, they sought to kill Lazarus and Jesus. When God does bring powerful help into your life, you will seek to kill it and the one who sent it because you want your excuse and you want to hide behind it. This firework power resulted in intense intensified hatred and rejection. It did not bring them to repentance. When you set about to evaluate the promises of God, you are going to reason from a starting point. And that starting point either assumes your fallibility and God's perfection, or it assumes your perfection and God's possible fallibility. I gave the analogy four years ago when I ministered in Israel about the Holy Spirit. I gave the analogy of a lifeless fan. and You've heard that perhaps. I don't know. But I said that if, the, if you bought a fan from the department store and you put that fan together <clears throat> and you hung it on the wall and you put the power cord in and you press, pressed on, and nothing happened, you would have a couple choices, wouldn't you? One, you could be like a good 21st century Christian and stand under the still fan and say, oh, isn't God good? Don't you feel his presence? That's like the emperor's new spirit. (laughs) Or the other is you would have a choice to reason from the assumed fallibility of self or the assumed fallibility of the maker. If you knew this was from a reputable brand and you had assembled these fans before and you knew this was a good company and they made good product, then if the fan didn't turn on and you had assembled it, who would you question and what would you do? Would you go back to the owner's manual, the Bible? and say, wait a minute, there are truths contained here that are not realized in my life. I must have gotten something wrong. Or would you say, yeah, this is just a piece of junk. If, if it was made in China, and you bought it at Harbor Freight, how many times would you take it apart and try again and again? Zilch! If you started... the premise of disbelief in the Maker's reliability, then you would not try it again and again and again and again until you got it right. But if you believed in the Maker, you would question yourself. You would assess yourself against the backdrop and standard of the promise. You would not assess the promise against yourself. And if somebody in the shop next to you was assembling a fan at the same time, and they succeeded in doing it, what would that do to you? If their fan was running and yours was not, and you said to, and you were, you pulled the screwdriver out and you twisted on this and tightened that, and you said, this stupid thing, and your neighbor said, don't call yourself a thing. I got that from a mechanic this week. (laughs) If he's done it and he's gotten the results that you want, how much harder does that make it for you to quit? Then you just have to say, well, my fan was made differently. A temptation has befallen me which is unique to all men. (laughs) Y'all have been given everything needed for life and godliness, but not me, because I am an exceptional creature. I am that one who has an excuse. What what, What is my point? I'm trying to help us see that if we don't watch it, we can allow scripture to be interpreted by a carnal mind that renders it powerless. Do you see what I'm saying? that shifts the onus back to God and leaves us scot-free, when in fact, he would have, but he could not. And he will, if you can, humble yourself. Now, if you're thinking God might be true and, and this might be broke, how many times are you going to succeed? We're told in James that the double-minded man can receive nothing from the Lord. If you're plagued by double-mindedness, you're not going to be able to have the kind of resolute, motivated faith that does the will of God and receives exceedingly great and precious promises. Something has got to roll over in your heart that says, God, you spoke to me. I know it was you. You confirmed it in this way. You revealed it through your word. And I am holding on to that truth. And I may take this fan apart a thousand times and put it back together till I'm blue in the face. I will question myself. I will doubt my eyes. I will doubt my mind. But I will never doubt his promises. Though the stars should break faith with the skies, I will never doubt his promises. For as many... As are the promises of God. In Him, they are yes. And through Him is our amen to the glory of God. The NIV says, All the promises of God in Christ Jesus are yes and amen. And John in his revelations says, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on the horse was called faithful and true. God has given us a new beginning. That's what this is this morning. That's what it was Friday. I want us to reconsider promises we've set on the shelf. I want us to change the proud way of interpreting scripture privately and say, God, would you bring it alive to me through the power of your Holy Spirit? I'm ready to be carried along. I'm ready to see something I've never seen. So, don't fall prey to the fallacy of a single cause. It may be true that you cannot bake a cake unless you use sugar, but it is not true that because the cake has sugar, it is a good cake. It is true that He is the author of salvation to all those who obey Him. Everybody wants to talk about God being the author of salvation, but that's what it says. It says He is the author of salvation to all those who obey him. Hebrews 5 and 9, And having been perfected, Jesus became the author of salvation, eternal salvation to all who obey him. So he's the author, but I've still got to obey. God's initiating work makes me love him in return, but doesn't make me love him in return. (laughs) Do you understand? It empowers, it allows, it provides for it. It is the author, it is the finisher of it, but I can still curtail it. I can still abort it. God, don't let me.